Good morning. It is great to see you guys as we are celebrating the season of Advent. Um, I want to say a special hello to those of you who are watching this online because you're watching the soccer game right now. We know who you are. <laughs> Took attendance, so just, you wrestle with the Lord over that decision. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm mostly, um, I actually have the game streaming on the monitor, so if you see me distracted at any point today. <laughs> hey, I am so glad you're worshiping with us. If you're new here, if this is your first time, when you came in, there is an orange card somewhere in a seat around you. We are a church that wants you to know that you are loved. You are loved by God and you are loved by us. One of the ways that we want to love you well is by getting to know you and being able to just help you take any step that you would like to take in becoming a part of our community here at RCC. So if you would fill that out, you can hand that to someone with an orange lanyard in the lobby. You can hand it out um, to me personally in the lobby, or you can put it in the offering boxes that are along the back of the auditorium as you leave. Either way, we would love to hear from you and connect with you and just really be available to help in any way that we can. Um, the other really cool event that we have coming up, if you're new is our newcomers event. The next one is going to be January the 8th. So as we are coming out of a busy holiday season, this is a great opportunity for you just to hear a little bit more about what it means to be a part of Roswell Community Church. You're not committing to anything. We won't ask for your fingerprints or your blood type. We just, we want to make sure that as you are exploring what it means to be a part of our community, that you can hear a little bit about what makes us who we are, how you can get involved in ministry, and honestly, any questions that you may have of us we would love to answer. And most importantly, just for us to be able to spend time and get to know you and your family better. And so if you have not registered for our newcomer event, you can do that on the app or the website. We would love to see you on January the 8th. One of the key components of how we try to love the world that God has placed us in around Christmas is our Christmas offering. We call it Love Shares. Um, our, our, our chairman of our elder board, Britt Carley, came up with the name Love Shares. And so um, it's this idea that we want to be a people that share what God has given us for the advancement of his kingdom. And every year we pick a project with one of our global mission partners where we can intentionally drill in on a specific need that advances is the kingdom of God and helps us to love the world. This year, we have partnered with our Brazilian missionaries to drill wells, which you're like, that seems random. Here's, here's why. It's really two reasons. We believe that God's called us to spread justice and do good in a broken world. There are people without access to clean water. That is not justice. That is not a display of God's goodness. Drilling wells in impoverished remote parts of Brazil spreads justice and the goodness of God. Here's the other avenue that this allows for. Um, for Bruno and Camilla to go into these areas and share the gospel with people that have never heard it before, to be able to provide them with clean water gives them a massive amount of credibility to go in and begin to have these conversations and to share the love of Christ with these people that have never heard of it before. And so we set out to, to drill four wells in remote areas of Brazil. The wells cost about $5,000 a piece, and I've got great news. We are halfway through our love shares period of giving, and we have raised enough to drill two wells. 
So halfway through, we're halfway there. Thank you for being generous. Thank you for being a people who are sacrificially being a part of the gospel going out and loving the people that God has called us to love. As we close out this season of giving, if you have not had a chance to do this yet, I'd encourage you to go online. It's on the app, on the website, and give to our Love Shares initiative. We genuinely desire to be a people that love our neighbors well. And this is such a powerful, simple way of doing that. Last place I want to direct your attention. I know that Christmas is busy. Um, We are, as a family, exhausted. There's just always something. And so in the midst of the busyness, a lot of times I think that we can disconnect from some of the rhythms that we get into around our schedules. And so as we prepare to jump back into a new year, I want to call your attention back to opportunities to engage in community. God's wired us to develop spiritually and emotionally when we do life with other people. And so at RCC, we really want to be a place where you're loved and you're known. And we have these opportunities where we hope that happens. And so if you're not in a community group and you are ready to jump into a community group, let us know. If you want to find out about a DBG group, our men's or women's Bible study. We have all of those opportunities available and they're getting ready to kick back off in January. It's good to take a break. It's good to take a rest. But as we jump into the new year, I just want to put that on your radar. And so if you're not involved in one of those and you'd like to be, let us know. Um, Email David Wilhite. He's our community director. Email me. Just talk to one of us in the lobby. It doesn't have to be super complicated. But as we approach kind of a reset of a new year, we genuinely want to remind you that we are better when we are doing life together and we want to invite you into that with us. So if you would pray with me and we will jump into the last week in a, in a series where we have looked at what the Old Testament says about why we celebrate Advent. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have this opportunity to come and hear from you today. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and through your spirit and is that we come and celebrate you in the midst of the busyness of the holiday season, that you would firmly root our hope and our joy in the only place that can hold that well, and that is the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. You know, I think, um, I think Advent is, is an appropriate framework for us to view the holiday season through because this is a season of waiting. And I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, I don't wait well. I know there's different abilities when it comes to waiting, but I actually try to not drive certain times of the day because I just don't wait well. And Christmas is a season of waiting. Whether you are three or 73, you're waiting in Christmas. When we're younger, there's something about the buildup to Christmas morning that is kind of torturous because you know the presents are coming, right? Like you see them under the tree, you can't touch them. I know you're not looking in your parents' closet to see what they got you early, but you can't wait because there's this fulfillment that's waiting at the end of the month. You're gonna finally get the Xbox or the iPhone or, Um, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, and you're just waiting for that day where you finally have it. If you're a parent, you are waiting for Christmas to finally be over so you can take a nap, right? No more parties, no more baking, no more family in town. Not not the family that's in town now. I don't mean you. I mean other families. Um, Just no more madness, no more stack of Amazon boxes in your bedroom, right? It's just going to be over, and you can't wait to get a break. 
And I think the reason that's a beautiful picture of the season of Advent is because what we wait for at Christmas is a shadow of what we wait for when we talk about salvation, right? The rhythm of anticipating the coming fulfillment is the rhythm of what it means to wait for Jesus Christ. And so God's people in Micah were promised a savior, right? When Jesus came, that was the fulfillment of a prophecy that was thousands of years in the making. What we wait for as Christians is for the day that he comes back and ushers in an eternal kingdom. So Advent is a celebration of when Jesus came the first time and this recognition that we anticipate the day that he comes again. And so we've been in the book of Micah, which was this beautiful prophecy in the Old Testament where Micah is coming to God's people and he's giving them this picture of what it means to wait for salvation. We get these cycles, right? We get these cycles of God's judgment on sin and God's redemption of his people. And so today we're in the last section of Micah where we're going to see the last oracle of redemption or prophecy of redemption. And so like we've talked about, all of these prophecies were not a story that's written in linear chronological order like you would read a fiction. Now, if you try to read it that way, it's going to be very confusing because it was never meant to be consumed in that format. It's more like a collection of short stories of different genres. There's some poetry. Last week we had a courtroom drama. This week we're going to kind of get, um, it's almost like a slam poetry reading from a couple of different perspectives of different characters, right? And so we're moving into this final phase of Micah talking to God's people and he's reminding them of what they wait for. So this week, as we think about what we're waiting for, as Christmas culminates here in a few days, Micah's going to ask this question, what, what are you waiting for? And he's going to redirect our hope away from anything other than the person and work of Jesus. And so let's pick it up here. We're in chapter 7. We're in verse 1. This first section is Micah talking. So this is the prophet himself talking to God, talking to himself, just sort of expressing the reality of where he is. He says, woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So he's going to interpret the imagery that he just gave us right here. He says, the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind, and they all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. So what he's doing here is really lamenting the reality of how messed up the world he lives in is. And so that imagery of there not being grapes because they've all been gleaned or they're not being figs is actually him giving a metaphor for what God's country, God's people resemble. He's saying there are no righteous people. The grapes are a resemblance of the fruit of salvation, the fruit of obedience. He's saying there is nobody in the land that is worshiping God. Everyone has fallen away. No one left is faithful. The figs that he's talking about are this representation of God's leadership. He's saying there is no one left in leadership that is wanting to do good for the people. They're selfish, they're manipulative, they're murderous, and they have wrecked something beautiful that God has promised. And so you see this imagery that he keeps going with in verse 2. He says, um, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. 
The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now, confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So he is continuing to give a description of how twisted and broken the world around him is. He's talking about how the people who run Israel, the princes and the judges, are so evil that not only are they twisted, they're actually skilled at being evil. He's basically talking about when they're weaving a net. He's talking about the plotting and scheming that they're committing to take advantage of the poor, to steal their money, to oppress, and to use all that God had promised for his people for their own selfish desires and ambitions. He's saying the government and financial systems are broken by these men who are intentionally doing evil for their own benefit, and it's killing God's people. There is nothing good left in Israel because evil is running the land. Then he goes in to say, you can't even trust people in your own house. Families are broken. You can't trust your wife. You can't trust your mother-in-law. You can't trust your sister. I swear this isn't like on purpose during the holidays, right? But this is just what the text says. He says, you can't even trust your own family because people are wicked. The depth of the wickedness of the God's society has him in a place where he has no hope. He has no hope. And I think, honestly, this resonates with us because as we talk about what we're waiting for, this is a picture of why we need to wait for something. Because during the holiday season especially, I think something about the pressure and the family and the baggage and the whatever, it's just an easy time for us to feel depressed and stressed out. And it reminds us that we need to wait for something because the world around us is broken. And I think we can relate to what Mike has seen here. He starts it with, woe is me. And I think we feel that way. I think it's easy to look around and feel that way right now. Woe is me. Things are broken. The world is not like it's supposed to be. And just like Micah, we can start at a really high systemic level and look at the brokenness of the world, and we can zoom down into a personal relational level and look at the brokenness of the world. Because so many of us come to church, and we know this is the time where it's the holidays, so we sing the Christmas songs, and we smile, and we laugh, and we, we come and take communion, and we, we try to get maybe the picture by the tree in the lobby. But on the inside, we we feel more woe is me than deck the halls. And that, that's normal because we live in a world that creates a sense of woe. The problems of Israel really aren't that different than the issues of America in some ways, right? We still have wealthy, corrupt people that have enacted systems that oppress and take advantage of those who are poor. That still happens today. And for a lot of us, we're in a situation economically where we're like, woe is me. The economy's not good. I'm having a hard time making ends meet. I don't know how I'm going to take care of this debt. I don't know how I'm gonna to get to a place where I feel peace financially. Or we just interact with those that are oppressed. We work in industries or government organizations where we see the fruits of oppression that are destroying our people. So internationally, I won't bore you with a lot of statistics, but I'll tell you there's this reality that wealth inequality is doing this. It's getting worse. The people at the top have a lot more. The 
the people at the bottom, there's more of them and they have a lot less. When that happens in history, let me just give you a history primer. Widening inequality has never ended well. It usually ends with guillotines and people being eaten, right? Like we've mostly evolved out of that, but just at no point in human history has extreme wealth inequality been good for society because it always ends the same way that Micah's talking about this. People being oppressed and destroyed. People created in the image of God being taken advantage of. And it hurts. It hurts. We should never be numb to inequality and oppression. It should hurt us because it reveals the brokenness of the world that sees people as expendable assets that can be used. Micah says, I look around and I see this and woe is me. It's horrible. God's people are being chewed up and spit out by the corrupt. He says the people that God has entrusted in leadership are, are hurting people. And maybe you've been in a place where you've been abused or hurt. Unfortunately, maybe you've been in a place where even being here right now is difficult because the abuse and hurt that you've experienced came from the church itself. Micah talks a lot about the corrupt priests of the Old Testament and how people who in God's name were taking advantage of and lying and hurting. And we see that. We live in a society where it seems like some days you read the news and the clergy look more like how Shakespeare wrote clergy than how the New Testament wrote clergy, right? Are you tracking? And so we see this reality where even the church itself is a place where we can't find shelter from hurt and abuse. It says, woe is me, the world is hurt. He gets into family and we come into this place where we have family baggage or relational baggage, whether it's divorce, whether it is mental health, whether it's just broken family systems, whether it's addiction, whether it's just loneliness that we don't know what to do with. Maybe in any range of issues, we see the brokenness of sin affect our ability to feel safe, trusted, and connected. And during the holiday season, that's just amplified. We feel, woe is me because of this broken relational reality that I sit in. And we feel the brokenness of the world press in on us like it is for Micah, and we almost don't know what we're waiting for. We almost don't know what we're waiting for. And this is hard because that loneliness and that mourning, wrestling through the death of family, wrestling through the death of a business or a dream or a relationship, really makes us ask this question, where's God? Where is he? This isn't a new question. Um, we often look at our circumstances and we say, where is God? If my circumstances are like this, where is a good God? This isn't new. Christendom has asked this question for a really long time. The Israelites were asking this question. When, he, when Micah talks about how their judgment has come, remember he's prophesying that the Assyrians and the Babylonians over the course of 200 years are going to completely conquer the northern and southern kingdom. God's people are going to be thrown into exile in Babylon and then Persia for hundreds of years before they come back and rebuild the temple. They ask, where is God? Look at my circumstances. What do I do about this? Um, do you guys know that actually the first Christians to anoint kings in the name of God were the Visigoths in Spain after Rome fell. And something happened in Spain shortly after the Visigoths took over. The Moors came up out of North Africa as part of the Umayyad Caliphate, and they killed all of the Christians and took most of Spain over until the Reconquista. And when you read the writings of Christians at the time, they thought it was the apocalypse. How could God let the evil Muslims invade his kingdom? 
that had been sanctified by God when they anointed that king. They didn't know what to do with it. It happened again a little bit further to the east in the Mediterranean when the Ottoman Empire started to encroach on Christendom. And Istanbul fell to Mehmed the Conqueror. And so Christians have always had this struggle of when I look at my circumstances, how do I look at the brokenness of my circumstances where it seems like God didn't work and wait for salvation. What do I do with that? So where, where are you hoping? Because unfortunately, our circumstances can cause us to look at our faith and say, I don't know that this works, which is what got the Israelites in trouble in the first place, right? I don't know that this works because look at where I'm at right now. Look at how hurt I am. Look at how hopeless I am. What do I do with this? This is such a beautiful passage because in verse 7, Micah tells us what to do. And I want us to really read this and pay attention because this is such a powerful reality in the midst of our suffering that we have to cling on to. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. (laughs) In the midst of hopelessness and brokenness, in a coming judgment of the Lord, he says, I'm still going to wait for God because I know my God will hear me. That's the faith that we wait for. We wait for a God that hears us because here's this reality. Our present doesn't overshadow God's future. That sounds a little bit more self-help than I want it to, but the reality is our present does not overshadow God's future. So you have Micah here, and he is in the situation where God's salvation for his people out of exile won't come for 200 years right? Like this is not a salvation that's happening tomorrow or the next day. This isn't even a salvation that Micah is going to live to see. He says, I believe that God's going to save me and I'm going to wait on him. I'm not going to turn to idols. I'm not going to go cynical. I'm not going to leave all of the truth I know about God's character because the brokenness of sin is hurting me. He has this belief and this faith that God's sovereignty and his grace and his mercy supersede the circumstances of a temporary broken evil world. Evil circumstances hurt, but they don't last and they don't overwhelm the promises that we have from our Father. And so for us as Christians, we aren't awaiting a political salvation of an earthly kingdom being restored. We're awaiting a heavenly eternal salvation where we find eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of God's kingdom that will last and reign forever. And so as we enter a season where the weight of brokenness presses in on us, we can safely say, I hope in the Lord because we believe that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that transcends what we're going through right now. Even in the midst of death and divorce and stress and economic injustice and political injustice and confusion and depression and hurt, we have this belief that through the work of Jesus Christ, we have this eternity that's promised with our Heavenly Father, where all of that pain goes away. Our hope isn't rooted in the right now, it's, it's rooted in the later. And so right now, the disappointment the confusion, the anger, it doesn't overshadow the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. As we enter this season of Advent, this is such a powerful time because we are in the midst of waiting. We're waiting for God to save us. We're waiting for him to free us of what is happening right now. We don't always know when and we don't always know how, but we know who. Our present doesn't overshadow God's future. The man teaching us this was looking at a really difficult situation and it would stay really difficult for them for a few hundred years. But he says, I'm going to wait for God. I'm going to wait for God. 
We're going to see why as we jump into this next section. So we're going to shift characters right now. Okay, Micah was talking. This is a new section where Jerusalem personified is talking. So um, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? There's these, there's these cities or places that have more meaning than just a literal place on the map. If I'm like, oh, you know, L.A., the West Coast, like we get that, right? Um, somebody's like, oh, France. Somebody's like, surrender. I didn't know. I didn't know that Matt grew up. And somebody told, oh, you're, I didn't know Matt. I don't, it's fine. Um, you guys are in the World Cup finals. So. But if I say France, you say surrender, at least post-World War I. They were decent before that. People forget. Um, Hundred Years War, they did okay. But listen, I say New York. You're like, oh, fashion, um, rats, weird smell in the summer. Like there's just these places. I say Georgia Tech. You think good at math. See, we went positive this week, guys. Um, <laughs> I say, Georgia, you think football. I'm like, that's right. Do you see how we did that nicely this time? So in the same way, Jerusalem as a city was a personification of God's goodness and his promise. Nineveh as a city was a symbol of paganism and an enemy of God, kind of the, the forces of evil, if you will. They would talk about Nineveh the way that we would talk about Nazi Germany, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so this is the city of Jerusalem speaking as a person. Um, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is your God? My eyes will look upon her now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So let's just pause and talk about that for a little bit. Jerusalem is basically, and it's interesting that, that you see God holding two roles at the same time with Jerusalem. He's both her judge and her savior, right? She says, I will bear God's indignation and judgment of my sins, and I wait for the day that God will save me. And he'll trample down my enemies. I will not be constrained by the realities of my sin and brokenness forever because one day God has the power to save me. Then he goes on in verse 11, and this is Micah talking again. Now Micah's kind of giving a prophecy to God's people as the city of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? The city is a symbol of God's people. A day for building your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria in the cities of Egypt. The they is most likely the exiled people. So God's people will come back home to him. This is a symbol of repentance and joy and being reconciled to God when he talks about they coming back. And from Egypt to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabit inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So he's saying that there will be this physical manifestation of the reality of God's victory over sin and evil. He's saying there will be a day, Jerusalem, where your boundary is extended. When you would build walls of a city at the time, that was indicative of protection and security. If you were a city with walls, it was difficult for you to be conquered. They didn't have airplanes yet. Like, we fixed that problem. You just fly over the walls. What's the big deal? They just didn't have that technology available yet. And so if you had walls, that was a symbol of security and prosperity. And he's saying there will be a day that God's people will be safe and secure, and their boundaries will expand. Basically, God's kingdom will prosper. It will be larger than it is right now. These are signs of God's victory over evil. 
He says, there will be a day that the earth is desolate because of the fruits of its inhabitants. Here's another way of looking at that. Justice will come for evil. One of the issues that we sometimes have when we think about the woe is me section of this is, God, where are you that this evil is being allowed to exist? Micah's reminding us there will be a day that God takes care of evil. It's not on our timetable. It's not within our plans. But there is a day that God's going to fix evil. Justice is coming to an evil, broken world. Saying the earth will be desolate because of what their inhabitants did. Kind of get like the Mad Max picture, right? Like the desert, nuclear holocaust, weird leather and spikes. I don't know where they got it from. Um, And ski goggles. Like that's kind of the picture you have of this desolate earth that has been just raised by an army. That's not necessarily the literal earth being made desolate, but that's the forces of evil being defeated and impoverished. Does that make sense? Here's, Here's why we can hope in the Lord is here's what we see in this section that when the sin and brokenness of the world threatens to crush us we can look towards God that we may be saved so when Micah was giving this prophecy God's people were waiting on this coming salvation right they were waiting on being reinstated in their land after an exile they were waiting on a Messiah they were waiting on salvation as Christians we have an even more secure place to put our hope when we read this. We don't have to wonder how God's going to save us. We know how God has saved us. He sent his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins and raise three days later and ascend into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And because of who Jesus is, we don't wonder how God is going to save us. We know how he has. He's forgiven our sins. He's defeated death. He's promised us eternal life. He's given us hope and peace in the indwelling of his spirit. He's given us a hope that transcends anything that's going to happen right now. So when the world right now presses in on us, we say we know that salvation is coming. We know that something better is on its way. We're confident that God has the final word because of who Jesus is. So at Advent, this points us to this anticipation of that coming salvation. We can hope for the Lord because we already know that he's shown up. We're just waiting on him to come back. The foundation of our faith is rooted in the reality that God has saved us. God has saved us. He saved us through Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. We live in a pursuit of God sanctifying us and making us holy as we await him coming back and ushering in an eternal kingdom. That's what we wait for. We wait for the reality that the fullness of salvation is coming. And Christmas is a reminder of how that started with a baby. We're brought to this point of saying salvation has come. This prophecy that Micah gave for God's people has been fulfilled. We can live into the joy of eternity in the midst of the pain and brokenness of the temporary. That's what we anticipate. So let's look and finish. He says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. This is still Micah talking. Who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. He's basically talking to the Lord and saying, shepherd your people and bless your people. Let them be in these markers of Israelite history where they saw the goodness of God. This would be like Americans saying, um, when he talks about Bashan and Gilead, this would be like Americans saying, um, 
you know, let's go and enjoy Valley Forge in Yorktown. Does that make sense? These are these significant markers in Israelite history where God gave them victory and peace. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. This is God talking now. The nation shall see and be ashamed of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouth and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. So as Micah's talking to the Lord here, here's what he is affirming and talking about. There will be a day where the entire earth recognizes and celebrates the strength and glory of God. That's the note that he ends this on. The greatness of God will be recognized and celebrated. He's saying that, and listen, we know right now. So it's interesting when we look at how we're having some conflict with culture right now, it's a little bit different than we have in the past because up until now, pretty much at every point in history where Christianity's rubbed against the culture, it's always rubbed against another belief system. And, and again, historically, we can look at this and say, maybe it's Islam, maybe it's Hinduism, maybe it's Judaism at a few points. Maybe it was some of the pagan issues that we dealt with in the very, very early days of the church. Here's what's kind of unique, um, probably in, let's call it the last hundred years of Christianity, kind of dealing with a cultural rub, is now we're at a point where we're dealing with a culture with no faith system, with secularism, or maybe secular humanism would be a word from it. And so now the rub is not, my God is better than your God. Now the rub is you're crazy for believing in God. There's clearly no such thing. And that's a new conflict we've had. But the questions of God pretty much remain the same. Where is your God? Is he really that great? You seem foolish for putting your hope in this. It's a myth or a fairy tale. Or, or how can you believe in God when this happens? Or how can you believe in God when these hypocrites are over here? And there's a world that doubts the goodness and power of God. Right? Like that's just where we live. Now, again, the conversation's framed a little bit differently now than it has been in the past, but, but the tension is still, is your God really God? Because we don't think so. This prophecy is so powerful because Mike is saying there will be a day when there is no doubt in anyone's mind of who God is and how worthy he is of our worship and our hope and our celebration because he is a God who is sovereign, powerful, holy, and good. And that's a good day because when the glory and reality of God is visible, the earth will pass into this kingdom that surpasses anything that we could believe when we talk about what is good for us. So again, Advent is a celebration of peace and salvation beyond what we can fully grip and wrap our arms around as broken people. Because it is this eternal kingdom where in the revelation of God's goodness and glory, pain is gone, sin is gone. Death is gone. Addiction is gone. Depression is gone. Confusion and doubt is gone. And God's people freely rest and celebrate and worship in his perfect holy goodness. How can we anticipate anything less than the eternal kingdom of God in which his goodness and glory is visible to everyone? Not because we're out to get people, but because we want to see people know the truth of who he is. Because we've experienced the truth of who he is. And so as we get just a little bit closer to celebrating the coming of Jesus, let's anchor our hope clearly and plainly in what we wait for. We wait for the salvation that Micah talks about. 
We wait for a God with a faith that believes he will save us in the midst of a woe is me reality. Because that's what sin causes in us is a woe is me, but it doesn't end there. We have this safe place for our hope. We have this safe place for our salvation. So in our questions and our doubt and our anger, we have this invitation from the Father to place our hope in Jesus Christ. The explicit coming of God to earth so we may be saved. That's what we celebrate. And so this morning, we're free to come and celebrate today what we know has already happened. We, we do it through our prayers and through singing. We do it as we celebrate communion, the way Jesus commanded us to remember him. By touching and tasting these physical reminders of what he did for us on the cross. And we can do that now. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait to be perfect. We don't have to wait to have our doubts quelled or our anger crushed. We can right now as broken people, as hurting people, come to Jesus with a hope that he will save us and be met by a gracious father who cannot wait to invite us into the truth of his goodness beyond what we can imagine. So would you pray with me as we continue to celebrate and anticipate the coming hope that we have of the salvation found in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And God, I just pray that as we are surrounded by all of these realities that threaten to extinguish our hope, that your spirit would work in us and remind us that we can wait on you, the God of our salvation, that we can, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of all that hurts us, we can safely trust and hope in you and what you did. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.